You are listening to Fellowship Around the Table. All right, welcome to the weekly chat. I'm your host this week, Keith Casey, and I am continuing on with Scott Johnson. We are in part four, talking about the book of Job. Now, last week when we finished Scott, we were getting to the conclusion of Job and his friends and their 21 chapters of dialogue back and forth. And the areas well, that these were friends, they came yes. out of love. They didn't maybe have the best of advice, but it, it continues to draw out the different viewpoints of why he might be suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And I would even say they, they went to great lengths and they demonstrated their friendship. That's right. Their walk spoke even louder than their talk. Certainly mm-hmm. once they got into it. <laughs> their walk is louder than their talk. Yeah. Now, after we get past chapter 25 and they're not coming to an agreement. No. There's a new voice that yep. enters the scene. Yep. What do we have here? So the friends throw in the towel. Uh, Job gives a final eloquent speech. Yeah. And then at, after that, a young man comes forward named Elihu. A young man. A young man. And he says, he basically says, I have a lot to say. I've held back out of respect because all you guys are older. So he's been there. He's been there. Okay. As a matter of fact, Heath, we didn't touch on this. I'm confident there was a crowd assembled. I okay. think this was a big event. Yeah. And I think everybody knew that Job was suffering. Everybody in the region knew these three guys had showed up. I think this was a big deal. I don't know if the crowd was 100 people or 1,000 or 5,000. And I, you know, we just don't know. But I think there's some evidence that there was several people there. And Elihu was one of them. I agree with that. And I am <laughs> laughing about humanity, but nothing brings eyes or focus <laughs> on a, an event like a tragedy. And tragedy, that's exactly <laughs> Everybody right. Everybody is car like wreck. glued in, yep. binging, binging. Yep. There is an audience there binging that's on this. That's right. How many, how many car wrecks happened because we're looking at the another car wreck? I know. Right? Yeah. Yeah. This was better than new Netflix series. It was. For this, for this it region. It was. This was the event of maybe the century. <laughs> All right. So this young man So Elihu steps up. forward and okay. he speaks up. And he basically says, look, you guys have had your time. I waited because I thought age should speak before youth, but I have a tremendous amount to say, and I've been waiting to say it. Now, Mm. I'm just going to tell you, I don't really have Elihu figured out yet. Okay. A lot of commentators think that Elihu got everything right. And when I read his words, and when I compare them to God's high regard for Job, I can't really sync that up. I don't think he got everything right. Hmm. I think he's also very hard on Job. Now, one thing I would say is Elihu speaks after Job has said many, many things. And so there is a thought to me that maybe Elihu is more right than I'm giving him credit for because he's responding to what Job has said since God has named him his number one guy. So he may be mostly right, but I I read a lot of things that I think are really, he's really tough on Job, and I'm not sure all that is warranted. Mm. I think the most informative part of this part of the book for me, most of the whole book of Job is poetry, and you can see it in the Bible with the formatting is different. But the beginning of the book is not. The story is about God and Satan talking and what happens to Job. Those two chapters are not poetry, they're prose. And the beginning of the account of Elihu in chapter 32 is prose. 
And the author basically says Elihi was mad at the three friends because they couldn't find anything actually that Job had done wrong, but they declared him guilty. And that's completely accurate. And then the author tells us Elihi was mad at Job because he justified himself rather than God. And I think that's also accurate. So the, the best part that helps me understand what Elihi was saying is right there when the author tells us that at the beginning. Mm. Okay. One other thing okay. I would throw in there that I just love about the book, but it's not theologically significant. But we can talk about things that are just fun, can't we? I hope so. Okay. <laughs> I hope we are. Absolutely. I'll just throw this in there. Elihu refers to lightning six times. Hmm. Now, I personally love lightning. Yes, you do. I don't want to get struck by it. I, I don't love it that much. You like to photograph it. I've, I have photographed it, and I love thunder. And so this resonates, no pun intended, with me, <laughs> that he refers to lightning six times. And I think that tells us a big storm is approaching. Oh, There's even wow. one reference when Elihu says, at this, my heart leaps. But it doesn't say what this is. And I'm confident it is a lightning strike and a clap of thunder. And I think Elihu is speaking in real time, and we don't have the soundtrack, right? We don't have the video or the soundtrack mm. from it. All we have are the words. But he says, at this, my heart leaps or my heart pounds or something along those lines. I think he is very excited about this approaching storm. And in fact, God is going to speak out of the storm. That leads us right into chapter 38. It and it says, the Lord answered Job yep. out of the whirlwind. Of the, of the whirlwind or out of the storm. That's right. So at the end, God speaks. That's right. What's happening here? So let's set this up a little bit. Okay. One of the things that Job longs for over and over again repeatedly in his speeches is to have an audience with God. Yes. And in fact, my favorite one of those I'm going to turn to here real quick is in chapter 23. Okay. Chapter 23, verses 3 through 7. Job says this, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. In other words, God. Oh, that I knew where I might find God, that I could come to his place of residence. I would lay out my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what, with what words he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me with great power? No, he would only pay attention to me. There an upright person, so clearly Job, there mm -hmm. an upright person like me, let's say in parentheses, could present his case before him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Let's look at a couple things here. He says in 23.4, I would lay out my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. What that means is I have so much I want to say to God. Yeah. So much that I want to ask him about, explain to him, ask him to set things right, because obviously I've been wronged. And I, I want him to hear me out. And then he says in 23.5, I would know what words he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. In the NIV, it says, I would consider what he would say to me. So he's thinking, Heath, you and I are sitting right here at a table across from each other. Yeah. You could say something to me and I would say, I'll consider that. Or I might say something to you and say, you might say, I don't think I really agree with that. Or yeah, I, I totally buy into that. But we would, we would be equals, peers talking back and forth. This is how Job imagines his conversation with God. I, I have so much I want to say to God, and when he would respond, I would consider what he has to say. He imagines God like a peer, and they're going to have this dialogue. So what actually happens when God speaks is very, very different from that. Mm. So God starts to speak in chapter 38. He speaks in 38 through 41. Okay. 
And basically, Job doesn't say anything at the beginning. And God says, were you there when I laid out the dimensions of the earth? Where were you? Where were you? And in fact, he says something like, who is this that obscures my path? So I think today we would say, who darkens my doorway? Mm. Like, who is this darkening my doorway, obscuring my path with knowledge of things he doesn't really understand? And he goes off into this, God goes off into the creation. And were you there when I marked off the boundaries for the ocean? He, God talks about lightning. He says, do the lightning bolts report to you every morning? I love that imagery. Oh. Like, and say, here we are. So the lightning bolts coming into God's presence saying, here we are. Where do you want us to go strike today? I love the imagery of that. Yeah. I mean, God is the consummate artist. Yeah. And he asks him if he understands where animals are born in the rocky crags and the cliffs where no person can see or even reach where they are. And so, in effect, God doesn't answer any of Job's questions. He doesn't give Job a chance to ask any questions yet. And he doesn't even address the fact that Job has been suffering. Hmm. But this is such a, a human condition. I see this in my own anecdotal experience and in life, in the great works of literature and movies when people are suffering. Why? I mm-hmm. I want an audience with yes. God. I want to know That's right. why. That's right. And, and, and I, surely Job wants to know why. Yes. And if I just <laughs> had an audience with God. That's right. Yeah. So so this is this is one of the coolest things in the in the book. And I would confess, I, I mentioned in one of our earlier times uh, that I I cry about stuff mm-hmm. when I when I when God really touches my heart with something. And fact, this was fact check true. That's right. And this, yeah, you've seen it. You've seen it. And uh, this is one of them. So, so God ignores everything about Job's plight. Hmm. Doesn't comment on him. And by the way, Job never knows according to the book, that yeah. he was God's number one man. He mm. never has the benefit of it. Wouldn't that have been nice to know? <laughs> Wouldn't you like to have known that right about now? <laughs> right. Okay, but God never tells him that. Mm. So instead, God tells him all this stuff. Now, here's the really cool thing, Heath, and I'll, this, this, I want to take a brief detour here. In this book, there is a tremendous, a tremendously important concept, I think, to understanding the book, which is the value of understanding what is not said, hmm. not only understanding what is said, but understanding what is not said. Because sometimes we should look at what should somebody have said, and if they didn't say that, what can we learn from that? Hmm. So Job has so many questions for God. Yeah. And when God speaks to Job, he doesn't acknowledge even his suffering. And so the logical thing for Job to have said to God when he gets his chance, which is at the beginning of chapter 40, Job should have said, what gives? I mean, you're not telling me anything about why I'm suffering. You're not telling me anything about why these things happened or, you know, did I really do something wrong? I don't know I did wrong or, you know, what gives me? Why aren't you, why are you just telling me about creation? That's what he should have said if it was a human to human conversation. He doesn't say anything like that. Instead, at the beginning of chapter 40, God gives Job a chance to respond. So it says, the Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Mm. Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. 
Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Now think about this. In chapter 23, Job says, I would fill my mouth with arguments. I have so much I want to say to God. When he has his chance, he says, I put my hand over my mouth. I have nothing to say. Yet none of his issues have been addressed or answered. How is it possible that that's Job's answer to God? He should have been utterly unsatisfied with God's response. Mm. And I think the answer, Heath, is found in being in the presence of God. I think Job was in the presence of God in a way that's different than any than us or anybody that we know will be in God's presence in this life. He didn't have any other questions. He was satisfied. With his presence. Yes. So Job was satisfied. His questions were resolved, even though not answered, simply by experiencing the presence of God. So to me, this is this really hits home with something that's very helpful and profound in this book for me. And it gets to what I see as a human condition. And you see it, I see it anecdotally in my personal experience. I see it all over the world and the great works and the films and all of that. And that's in my moment of suffering in, in getting back to those reasons for suffering that are very, very understandable to us. The first ones you mentioned about my sin, somebody else's sin, natural disasters, or maybe only God knows, but if I just knew why, I think it would be okay. Or mm-hmm. I, if I just knew why I could deal with it, or if yeah. I just knew why it would solve it. And I think what you're saying and what this book teaches us is that it's far greater and fulfilling to know the who. That's exactly right. Because we might think that if we got the why answered, that would make sense of it and we could live with it, we could move on, whatever, or fulfill us. But we would still be left wondering who's behind all this. Mm-hmm. I would say you're spot on. And I, I think Job testifies to that because Job didn't ever know why. He never finds out that he was God's number one man. He never mm-hmm. finds out what Satan's involvement was. He's It's never explained why, and yet he meets the who, and he doesn't have any of those questions anymore. All of his questions have just disappeared. I think that message is in our gospel. No question. Right? That it's far greater to know him, and that's when we're completed in all this than the why. Because you could get your why answered, and it's – and I think that's the illusion, that that's going to solve it for you. But right. there's a who behind all of this. Not, not only that, but I would say, Heath, if we want to really ask a why question, it's why did Jesus come and do what he did to redeem us? There's a why question for yeah. you. And again, we'd rather know who, and the why is just a, uh, it's an unfathomable blessing. Well, get to that part of the end there where yep. where Job's, silence and his hand on his mouth and you talking about this conclusion. Yeah. So basically Job's response to God doesn't make any sense from a human interaction standpoint. Right. If I thought you'd wrecked my life and instead you just told me about your job or something like that, I wouldn't, I would be utterly unsatisfied. (laughs) I want to know, Heath, why did you wreck my life? In Job's case, it's different solely because of who he's talking to, simply because he's talking to the Lord God Almighty, and he's he's present. I mean, he he understands from the presence of the Lord who God is and who he's not, and all of his questions are now insignificant. They've disappeared, they've dissolved, and they're no longer important. Now he understands the who, exactly what you're saying. And 
it talks about this where I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear yes. and the seeing of my eyes. Yep. Comment on that. Yep. What do you, what's final, going in there? His final words. So um, when God finishes at the end of chapter 41, which by the way, in the last two chapters of God's speech, he talks about the behemoth. Which yeah. by every description sounds to me like a like a brontosaurus type dinosaur, dinosaur when you read it. And he talks about the Leviathan and when you read about that it sounds like a dragon. Yep. I don't I don't try to explain that from a scientific standpoint. I'm just telling you when you read the text, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. So Job concludes after that by saying this to God in chapter forty two. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, I actually love that Job quotes this back because he remembers what God said. (laughs) He says, you asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Again, this is still Job talking. You, God, said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me, end of quote. Job speaking again, my ears had heard of you, so my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And I don't see this literally so much as I do, I think, at the soul level, he experienced the presence of God. He understood God's character, his almightiness, his omniscience, his wisdom, his love, everything that he that God allowed him to experience. It was a huge measure more than he had before, and all of a sudden he understood who God was uh, at least uh, at least enough that it was completely game changing for him, and who he was not. And he concludes by saying, "Therefore, I despise myself, and repent in dust and ashes." What does Job have to repent of? I mean, that's that's the odd question here, isn't it? Yes. Because what does he have to repent of? So I think in experiencing God's presence, his intimate personal presence. He knows now his sin. He knows how insignificant Mm. he is. He knows how different he is. The contrast, I guess is the word I could use, is absolutely striking. It's literally night and day. And he knows now how kind of puny and how sinful he is by comparison. So he repents, but is that the conclusion of of this book? No, it gets better for Job at the end. And so he's restored, basically. He gets, if you look at the counts of animals, he gets twice the number of livestock at the at the end of the story, as he lost in chapter one, literally the last chapter versus the first chapter. And then he is blessed with 10 more children, seven more boys and three more girls, which is interesting. And it's an interesting little fact about the book that the three girls at the end uh, were told what their names are. And we never heard the names of the girls at the beginning. So that's mm. kind of an interesting little thing about the book too. Yeah. Well, We've walked through the whole book, mm-hmm. and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and we're kind of out of time for for this week. But would you stick around for another week or maybe more and just really go through the other things that you find so interesting in this book that we haven't covered? I will. And actually, Heath, I, f- I forgot one thing. Maybe we should append to this, which is please. the friends are humbled. Oh, So please, let's, no. let's, let's go back. Let's step. go back. Yeah. Please. So after Job is restored, actually – Actually, if I think about it, I need to go. I need to go back before that because okay. that happens first. So after Job acknowledges his sin and says, "I repent in dust and ashes," God speaks to Eliphaz, and I would not want to be Eliphaz in this moment because mm. God basically says to Eliphaz, "I'm ticked off at you and your two friends because you haven't <laughs> spoken of me what is right as Ooh. my servant Job has." Ooh. Now, honestly, I don't fully understand his statement about Job because. He's really taken issue with Job, and Job has repented. 
But now God has said, you haven't spoken to me what's right as my servant Job has. So he tells Eliphaz, you are going to make a sacrifice and Job is going to pray for you and I'm going to accept Job's prayer on your behalf. And so the three friends are clearly humbled. Job is restored and and elevated again. And I'll make a connection to what happens there with Eliphaz later on when we talk. Okay. Well, let's save that for next week. Sounds great. Thanks again for being here, Scott. Delighted to be here. All right. We'll see you all next week. Thank you for joining Fellowship Around the Table. If you would like to learn more, go to fbctulsa.org.